Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome everybody coming into my home for Sunday morning for church, for Gospel Saving Church. And I want to welcome everybody coming from SoundCloud, coming from all over the world. I want to welcome you as well, too. God bless you. And thank you for joining us today on this beautiful day in June. Getting nice and warm here in Texas. If you live here, I don't know what it's like over the world, but it's getting nice and warm here in Texas. Finally, we've actually finally got summer. It's come and the rains have slowed down. Praise be to God. He answered my prayers on that. And thought Texas was maybe going to float off into the Gulf if it didn't stop raining there pretty soon. Anyway, thanks be to God. We're here again today for another beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, let's pray and ask God to bless our service and bless this message so that. Uh, we can understand and comprehend everything He wants to tell us today. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, Lord God Almighty in Heaven, our great and Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for this wonderful day. We thank You, Lord God, that we can come to You in Jesus' name, Lord God, because that's how Jesus said that we should pray. we got to come to You in His name, Lord, through Him. Thank You that we can. Thank You, Lord God, that You're always available, Lord God. That you're... <laughs> Like when we call on the phone and sometimes it goes to voicemail with people and sometimes we, you know, we, we try to get in touch with people and then they don't answer us back, Lord God. You are always available, Lord. Your phone is never too busy to answer us, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your unfailing love like we listened to this morning in that song by Chris Tomlin. Thank you so much, dear God. And Lord, please bless this message. Help us to understand what you have to say to us today. Speak to us, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit. Not just by me, Lord. I don't want to, Lord, I pray that I get out of the way, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit just uses my mouth and speaks the message that you have for me to speak this week. And Lord, that those that listen, those that will listen, or those that will ever listen, Lord God, will, will hear what you have to tell them, Lord, and, and they receive what I have to say, Lord, as your word, because I read your word. Lord, thank you so much. We love you and we praise you. And I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. If you guys want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 this week. We'll get to that reading of that and the title of our message, After My Thoughts. Very, very, very short this week. My thoughts from last week's message is your faith productive. One of the main points I talked on last week uh, about talking about the three different servants of Jesus Christ, was this. If we were not or are not going to serve Jesus Christ in His kingdom and building His kingdom for Him and being faithful to do the duties and responsibilities that He's given us to do, then we would become self-serving and in turn really building our own kingdom. And Jesus Christ, remember, called the one servant wicked and lazy because he and, and he ended up cutting himself off from Christ and going to hell because why? He stopped serving God. He never, or he never served God, one or the other, and he really became self-serving, and he and he did that as a lifestyle. He only took care of himself. He only took care of his kingdom. He he gave no. No thoughts, he gave no responsibilities and no charge to God's kingdom, the talents, the responsibilities and duties that God had given him to do. And instead, again, he lived a lifestyle of being self-serving. Well, look at Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 3, on this same matter. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind. So, Christians, have this same mind in you as Jesus Christ had in him. Okay, Have this same attitude of heart in you as Christ had in him. He He goes on to say, For he who has suffered in the flesh, listen, has ceased from sin. Now that's Jesus. He didn't, he ceased from sin. He never sinned. And then our mindset is that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the loss of men, but 
for the will of God. Notice there, and he goes on to say, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime, meaning the lifetime before we knew Christ, in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. But that verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And ironically, that's exactly how Peter ends that section. He ends this exhortation to Christians for live to God in the Spirit. So, Peter's definite emphasis there is on Christians, those who've decided to follow Christ, now living lives unto service unto God and not unto a self-serving, lazy lifestyle of our flesh. And he says, the reason being that you shouldn't continue to live that way is you spent enough time in your prior life before you knew Christ living that way. So, what, what did Peter say? What did Christ say we read last week? Again, one last thrust. Both Peter and Christ are both saying, don't become the lazy and wicked servant of last week's parable who ended up cutting himself off from God and be like the servants of God that stayed focused on being faithful to the duties and responsibilities that God gave them to do. So don't just live and do all the things you want to do and be lazy, but take heed and take care of the duties and responsibilities that God has given you to do. It's real easy. You see, God's loving, and he's given us lots of reasons to keep being faithful to Jesus Christ. Our only chore to keep remaining faithful to God is to continue to keep focused on his love and not the temporary pleasures that are really passing away of this life now. But again, stay focused on his love and keep pushing forward to be faithful to him, to the duties and responsibilities that he's called us to do. And then if we do, we shall have, the Bible says, a great reward. All right, praise God. Let's get on to our new sermon for today. Our title of our new sermon today The Separation of the Sheep and the Goats. That's our title. The Separation of the Sheep and the Goats. Notice as I read this section of Scripture, by the way, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, this is not a parable. We've read parables. And it says, the Bible says, and Jesus gave another parable. Or Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And we know that's a parable. Here, we don't have anything's going to be like. We have the exact account of, of this account that Jesus has given us. He's given us just a, a not a picture, of, but an exact account of how something is going to be. This separation of the sheep and the goats. Let's read Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you, gave, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or naked, and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king... This is Jesus will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away in everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Note here, real quick, the finality of this event. This Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, is the very last thing Jesus has to say on the original question that his disciples asked him about, when will these things be? When will the, you know, when will your coming be? When will the end come? This is the last thing that Jesus has to say on that subject. We move right into Matthew chapter 26 next week, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. So really, this is Jesus' final words that he has to say to us on the topic of when are you coming and when will the end be. I think that's important because which what do we have here? Last week, Jesus gave us a parable or spiritual picture of the judgment of Christians where we will have to give an account to him of what we have done with the talents or duties and responsibilities that he's given us to do when he returns. Remember, we just talked about that. That's an accounting that all those that have accepted him will have to bring to him once he returns. This week, though, Jesus tells us, I believe, of an end judgment of the entire world. And he tells us how it'll exactly be. This week, I believe Jesus has given us an account of the great white throne judgment that, uh, that John writes about to us in Revelation chapter 20, but just with a few different details. So we already read our section of scripture for today, but I want to read Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15 to you, which is the account of the great white throne judgment. And I want to show you why I believe that this might actually be the great white throne judgment written to us in John. Number one, that is the last judgment in Revelation. It's upon the world. And here we have Jesus with the last words said on the end. And then he goes on to another topic. Then we move on to something else. So Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the Bible records John's vision of what I believe this same account of the separation of the sheep and the goats. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. So they couldn't run. Because what? guess what? God is everywhere. Okay. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So you see the dead, here Jesus says that all the nations are going to be gathered before him, or all the peoples of the world are going to be gathered there before him. Here in Revelation chapter 20, all the world again will be gathered before God at this great white throne. And the dead are judged according to their works. Or you could also say those that aren't saved were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the the books. And what do we read about here? We read about people being judged according to their works, what they had done while they were alive in the flesh. He goes on to say, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Now here's the they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So there's the finality of, like like what Jesus ended here, these will go into way into the everlasting punishment, you know, designed for the devil and his angels. And he goes on to say, this is the second death. And he goes on to say, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here we have people that were written in the book of life, that got obviously to go to heaven, and then we got these people here that were judged by their works, that 
obviously worked evil in their lives and didn't love God in their lives, and then they were cast away into, into eternal destruction. Now, am I saying that Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 46, is without a doubt the great white throne judgment that John writes about to us in Revelation chapter 20? No, I'm not saying that that's absolutely it. Uh, but in fact, I will say that after I did some research uh, yesterday, nobody knows which judgment this exactly is because it doesn't line up with anything in the Bible that we know about. Uh, many great scholars uh, have looked at this same accounting of this judgment, of the separation of the sheep and the goats, and they actually don't know. They guess, and some say it's right before the millennial, right after the millennial reign of Christ, and some say not this, and so, but I believe that it's Revelation chapter 20, only because there's a lot of different similarities between these two judgments. But, don't get sidetracked into that. Whether Matthew chapter 25, the section we're reading today, and Revelation 20 are the same or not, doesn't change the fact here that what? Jesus is telling us of a great and terrible final judgment for some, and an awesome judgment for others, where many will end up in the lake of fire when it's all over, and many will end up in God's eternal kingdom when it's all said and done. So let's get into our study today and read about this great judgment that Jesus is going to have, I believe, at the end of everything, the end of everything before God just destroys everything and starts over again new. Verse 31, I won't read it again. Jesus just told us that when he comes in his glory and sits on his throne of glory. What is this? Well, it's not the rapture. We know that this is not the rapture that we've read about already before. Why? In the rapture, we read about he's coming and he's going to take some and leave others. Here, he doesn't take anybody. Here, he comes in his glory means like, you know, he's shown up. This is not his second coming. This time he's coming in his glory. And he's going to sit down on his throne of glory. So I don't believe it to be the rapture because he's not taken anyone. So then what is he doing? He's coming, sitting on this throne of his glory. What's he going to do? Let's look at verse 32 and see just what he does. He says here, after he comes... All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So we see that after he sits down, he gathers all the nations before him. Or you could say, all the peoples of the world will all be standing before him. Could you imagine this scene? It's going to be so amazing. The whole world, everybody on the world is going to be standing before God. I don't even know how that's possible, but you know, with God, anything's possible, right? And after all the peoples of the world are gathered together, then Jesus tells us he will do what? He splits them into two different groups. He says, I'm going to put the sheep on my right hand and I'm going to put the goats on my left. He tells us that he separates them so that he can judge them. Is Jesus trying to relay a deeper spiritual meaning to us and his, uh, and his disciples by calling the people at this judgment sheep and goats? Oh, I don't believe so. Historically, in the Bible, in New Testament and Old, there is no difference between goats and sheep. Goats and sheep were both good for food. Goats and sheep in the Old Testament were both good for sacrifice to God. They were, both, they were both useful animals for God's people to both eat and just, you know, they were to flock them together and they could have herds of them and sell them and, you know, shave their hair and sell their milk. And they were clean animals, what the Old Testament tells us of. They were clean animals. You had unclean animals like swine and pigs and locusts and things like that, but then you had the clean animals that were okay. Well, sheep and goats were both clean animals animals. In the New Testament, we read that really everybody is a sheep. I mean, whether they are following Jesus's voice or whether they're not, they're still all sheep outside of some that, 
you know, what the Apostle Paul calls wolves, you know, they're still basically sheep. They've just kind of turned sides and they're trying to destroy the sheep. They're really people that used to be sheep coming in, trying to, you know, coming into churches, coming into your house, coming into your faith, trying to destroy your faith. The Bible calls them wolves, but they were really sheep until they kind of switched sides and to try to destroy you. Okay. So really everybody's a sheep in the New Testament. So really sheep, goats, they're all good. So there's no real super spiritual meaning here about one clean, one unclean. I've kind of read a little bit about that where people thought, well, maybe goats were some negative connotation. No, no, goats and sheep are all good. So no deeper spiritual meaning here, but I do see something that Jesus did here that was neat. I really do. I see, see, I I looked at this and I studied on this and I prayed about this for a long time. And this is what I believe God showed me. See, why did he use the reference of the people as sheep and goats? Obviously, we know that the goats are going to be banished to hell forever and the sheep get to come into eternal life, but there's no difference in the animals. So what neat thing did Jesus do by referencing here the sheep and the goats? Well, you see, Jesus spoke to an agricultural society, to a people that were a farming people. So what did he always want to do? He always wanted to get his points across the best possible way that he could to the people that he was speaking to. And agricultural and farming type of people would have absolutely known that you're supposed to separate sheep and goats. So I believe he did this to show the people, just to show them a picture of how this judgment is going to go. I'm going to put these that are sheep here and the goats that are here, here. Why would a shepherd have divided sheep and goats. So I had to look this up because I'm not an agricultural person. I'm a city boy. I grew up in the city. Well, you see, there's differences in these animals' behaviors. Their grazing styles are different. They have different types of hair. The milk that they produce is different. Uh, you know, sheep have a certain taste of milk and goats have a certain taste of milk. Uh, they're different in it. They, they have different aggressivenesses. The, the, the goats are usually more aggressive. The sheep eat different. So all this being different... And all these animals to the shepherd or farmer were raised to produce products that they could sell for their livelihood. And if a farmer or a shepherd mixed these animals together in everyday common life, they would not get along, which makes for unhappy and unhealthy animals, which if an animal is unhappy and unhealthy, what happens? Well, their production of milk, their production of, you know, what they produce, the things that they're good for are go bad. They get sick. They get, they die. And so it was neither profitable for a shepherd or a farmer to keep sheets and goats together in one livelihood and one you know, we say grazing area. And so the people would have understood how a farmer or how a shepherd would have divided his sheep and his goats. See, when it came time to harvest, if you kept them together and they were unhappy, uh, the products that they provided for their owners, if they mixed together, their milk would be mixed together. It wouldn't taste like real sheep's milk. And, and then, then again, likely if people wanted to buy goat's milk, it wouldn't be the same. So their shaved hair wouldn't be the same. They would have different types of hair. Okay, so keeping them together was not profitable for the shepherd or the farmer, and it wouldn't be beneficial for the animals either because of the different factors that I just spoke about. So this neat thing I see is the only reason Jesus said, I'm going to put the goats on my right hand and the sheep on my left hand was because he wanted to help the people of the agricultural society understand the separation of the nations that he speaks about here. So what does Jesus do when he separates the peoples of the world into two different categories? Look at verse 33. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats will be on his left. And why does the Bible say, why, does we, why do we read here that Jesus does this? So he can judge them. Summing up the rest of these verses in a, in a, in a whole Exodus 8.23, God is speaking to the Israelites and the Egyptians in the days that Moses was called of God to bring the Jews, God's chosen people, God's people that were he had saved out of Egypt, out of Egypt, he says, Exodus 8.23, I will make a difference between my people and your people. And that's exactly what we see in the rest of our scripture today. We see God putting the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left so that he can what? He can judge between those people that are his 
and those people that are not his. Or the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. He makes a difference between those who are his and those that are not his to judge them. So let's read about this judgment in the sheep first that are on his right hand in verse 34 and see what Jesus has to tell them and see what they have to say and look at how this final judgment is going to go. Look at verse 34 with me. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What does he say? Come, you blessed of my father. These sheep were God's blessed people. God's people, those that were, you know, God loved and they loved God back. They were God's blessed people. That's the first thing he calls them. Then he tells them, inherit the kingdom or inherit the God, you know, the kingdom of God that was prepared for you from the beginning of all creation. And amen, that's exactly what I want to hear when I stand before God. Amen. But please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that this kingdom that was prepared for these sheep was prepared for them just because they're this select group of elect people that God chose before the foundation of the world because he says so. That's what God is not saying. He's not saying that this foundation, this kingdom that was prepared for them was just prepared for them because you know what? That's who I chose and those are my elect people. This scripture in no way speaks of election. No, what he's saying is, he's saying that this kingdom or God's kingdom here was prepared for any and all that will turn to Christ Jesus for refuge and salvation, period, the end. Jesus makes this point very clear by what he says next. Look at what he says next in verses 35 and 36. See if you can hear, if you can see anything about election. See if you can see here anything where God says, I chose them because I elected them because they were mine from the foundation of the planet. Verses 35 and 36. Jesus goes on to tell them why he chose them for the kingdom of God. Why they are to inherit God's kingdom. Verse 35. For I was hungry, he says, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Summing up all of what Jesus just said, these that were the blessed of God and got to inherit his kingdoms live lifestyles of fulfilling the first commandment which Jesus told us about in Luke 10, 27. He says, the very first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And that's what this first, these first sheep on his right hand, this is why they got to inherit God's kingdom. Because they earnestly loved God. And tangibly, by the way, they didn't just love God with their lips. Notice here. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was third. They served God. They loved God. They had a genuine desire to be God's and to take care of Christ. This is Christ speaking. So they loved Christ and they served him with their lives. And this is why Jesus says, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And because they lived lives loving Christ and loving Him tangibly, which means they didn't love Him with just their lips, but they gave Him real, physical, and tangible loves, then, or love, then they got to inherit 
God's kingdom. I can tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, that there's no greater pursuit in your earthly life than to live your life loving God and loving Christ. He made us, so you know, because He wanted to love us. Just so that He could show us love. And all He really wants from you is for you to love Him back the way He loves you. He gave Himself for you. He just wants you to give yourself to Him. But there is a slight problem with what Jesus just says. And these guys here, these sheep, this is their judgment day, and they're being judged in a good way. Come, you blessed of my Father, come on in. But they find a slight problem with what Jesus just said to them. Look at how they respond to Jesus in verses 37 through 39. They say, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? See, they have a little problem. They never saw these things happen to Jesus. And in fact, these are good these are good questions. Why? Well, Jesus was never in these types of situations. Jesus was never sick in his earthly life. He was God in the flesh. Jesus was never, uh, you know, thirsty. Oh, I need something to drink. Oh, oh, please help me. Jesus was never in these types of situations. He was never even in these types of situations in front of his disciples, where his disciples actually were able to do something about it. The only recorded time in Scripture where Jesus says, I thirst, was on the cross. And the only people that responded to him when he was up on the cross and he said, I thirst, were one or two soldiers that came and brought some wine on a, sour, on a sponge and they put it up to his mouth so he could drink some sour wine, which some people believe was to help him deaden the feeling because he was in pain. But that was the only time where Jesus was in prison and they came to him. Jesus was not in these situations when he was alive. So as these people that are the righteous and that are standing there on the right hand that are the sheep, they're like, but Lord, we didn't ever see you in like this. Well, what are you talking about? We never saw you sick and in prison. And what, do you, what, what in the world are you talking about? So since Jesus was never in these situations when he was alive on earth, and he definitely wouldn't have fallen into these kinds of situations once he was resurrected, how could these faithful who inherited God's kingdom have done these things to him? Look at verse 40, he tells us. And then the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Well, who are his brethren? Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren. This is also controversial here. I've gotten different things as far as commentaries went. Who are his brethren? I don't see it difficult at all. His brethren, Matthew 12, 47 through 50, uh, they, people come to him. Jesus is teaching people and they say, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're wanting to see you. And Jesus says, who, who is my mother and who are, who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hands toward his disciples. So who are his mothers and his brothers? They are his disciples. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So pretty simply, Jesus says here, How did you show me love? How did you see me in all these situations and you did it to me even though you didn't see me in the flesh on earth being in these situations? He says, inasmuch as you did it to all of my followers, my real Christian followers, then you did it to me. So when you saw them sick and in prison and you visited them, when you gave them something to eat when they were hungry, when you saw them thirsty or in need and you took care of them, when you saw them homeless and then you took them in, then you did these things not only to them, but you did it to me. See, in God's world, 
That means if you're a Christian, this means, this section of scripture means that if you're a Christian in God's mind, if you show his brethren, the people that are his, those that are saved, if you show the saved tangible acts of real love, like Jesus spoke about in verse 35, to his, uh, to his other children, to God's kids, then he sees that just like you love him. That's pretty amazing. Note my brother in there. I don't want to denote from this. This is, a, this is a mighty misunderstood scripture for all the people of the world that want to do good for others. And I'll make a big point here. It's not bad to do good to others and to be kind to others and to help out those that are in need. That is not a bad thing to do. But notice this scripture here. Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, so these would be actual, authentic, born-again, saved children of God. Jesus is not telling you, if, if you as a Christian, and you are to give tangibly, or help tangibly, like he spoke of in 35, to those who are not God's kids, that he sees that as if you love him. So let's say the people of the world that are not saved. A lot of people take this scripture and they say, well, see all those people out there, oh, I need to give because Jesus said, if I give to those people, then he's going to see that as I love him. No. Jesus says, if you help out my brethren, those that are mine, who are called, who are, who are saved, then it's like you're loving me. Not if you just go out there and help any Tom, Dick, or Harry, then I see that as love to me. Again, Am I saying that giving something out of kindness to whoever is a bad thing? Absolutely not. And I think you should do that because you know what? It's showing God's love in a tangible way to anybody, and that's not a bad thing to do. But God only sees you treating his children in these tangible loving ways as you loving him. So, This first group on his right hand were judged upon the fact that they live their lives loving God's children, which God sees as loving him and Christ. And because they live these kinds of love and service to God and his children, they were accounted as worthy to inherit God's kingdom. And their judgment was pretty awesome. Kind of the well done, good and faithful servant. You've done everything I've wanted. You've, you've kept the charges and the commands that I've given you to do. Praise God. Come on in. Welcome in. Let's go to heaven. What about those goats, those other people that he puts on his left hand? Read verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. That is not what I want to hear on the day of judgment. Prepare for the devil and his angels. This judgment is not so good. Their judgment is to everlasting torment forever and ever and ever. Notice who, by the way, that this hell or this lake of fire was for. Notice God didn't prepare this hell and this lake of fire for people. But Jesus says here that God prepared this hell and this lake of fire for the devil and those that follow him. Hell was only initially prepared for all the devil and all those that follow him. Hell was not initially for people. For people that go to hell, that's because they've chosen to willfully follow in the devil's footsteps and not live lives of love to God. Notice that's very important. Which Which is exactly what we see in the why they get sent to hell. Look at verses 42 and 43. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. So that's exactly what we see. They had no good works of love toward God's children, and then toward God. Any tangible love, anyway. They might have said, oh, I love But, see, Jesus doesn't just see love as, oh, I love you. He sees love as, is your love tangible? Is your love real? Is your love an action? Is it something you're doing, or is it just something you're saying? 
So they had no good works. They had no good love towards God or his kids, which gods and Christ see as no love for them. And it was as a result of their no love for God lifestyles, they spend the rest of their lives or the rest of their eternities in the lake of fire. Of course, their response, just quickly, verse 44, then they will all also answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty and a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Their response is the same as those that were saved. They didn't realize either. I didn't realize I wasn't, you know, loving you. I, I never saw you in these situations. But just like the sheep on his right hand, verse 45 Then he will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So because you never did any of these acts of love towards God or his kids, you never showed me any love. And as a result, your eternity is eternal condemnation. Jesus gives us the final recap of the fate of both these groups of these peoples in this final judgment in verse 46, our last verse. And these will go away, speaking of the goats, into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So they were each judged according to their actions, according to the works that they had done while alive in their human bodies. The sheep or the righteous... Or why is anybody righteous except for they were surrendered to Christ? Christ's blood covered them. That's the only way anybody can be righteous because we can't be righteous upon our own works. But they were righteous considered because they had come to Christ. They had surrendered, so they were born again children with the blood of Christ covering them. They got to go to heaven or God's kingdom. And the goats are those on his left hand who did not choose to live lifestyles loving God, went away into everlasting punishment. Note this torment is everlasting torment. There's a thought out there that maybe eternal hell will only be just temporary. Maybe it's called the annihilation theory, and some people just can't bring themselves to believe in a God that would send someone away to hell forever, and then they would torment for all the rest of forever. Well, that's what everlasting The words there for everlasting and eternal are the same. And if there's everlasting fire for some, and the same word for eternal means eternal life, and it's the same for eternal forever living, then we have to then say that some go away into forever burning, something that they will never not know forever, and then others will go away into everlasting life where they will spend God, spend time, their lives, their eternities with God forever. So, question, is God some brutal, terrible beast for sending these goats who didn't choose to live lives of love to Christ to the eternal lake of fire to be tormented forever? Is he a brutal beast for doing this thing? A lot of people think so. A lot of people say, if you say your God is a God of love, then why and how could a God of love send people away to an eternal lake of fire? Well, I don't believe that he's a terrible brute beast. And actually, I don't believe that God sends anybody to hell. I believe people willfully send themselves to hell. How you say? Well, you see... The only people that will spend eternity in hell and the lake of fire forever are those who didn't ever turn to Christ or those who once knew him and then fell away considering, you know what, it's not worth it, they were offended with him. Whatever the case may be, they turned their backs on God, they got divorced from God, and they walked away from God. Those are the only people that are going to be spending their eternities in hell. And in this choice to reject God's love in Christ, they made a decision to to live a life of loving themselves and their sinful ways, just like the people that we read about last week that were the servants of God, but they turned away. Well, this is how God shows it to me, as far as why they're in hell. 
If someone only wants to live a life of loving themselves and not God, and so they live their lives for sin and self-pleasure, now on this planet, now in their earthly, fleshly bodies, then why can you tell me in the world would this person want to go to heaven where God dwells and spend their eternity there with him forever? Doesn't make any sense. To a person that's making a choice like this in their lives on earth now, making them go to heaven, if they didn't want anything to do with God now, really would be a punishment. It would really be terrible for them. If I want to live for me now, if you want to choose to live for you now, and you don't want anything to do with God, and you don't want His presence in your life, and you don't want to worship Him now, and you don't want to serve Him now, and you don't want to love Him now, why in the world would you want to spend all your eternity in a place that's filled with Him? Well, you wouldn't. So really, the people that are choosing to live a life of willful sin, the people that are choosing to live a life to reject God now, They're only getting what they want when they die. Because they didn't want God now. So that means that when they die, why would they want God then? Well, you see, that's God not sending them to hell, but them making their willful choice to now love God now. And hence, I don't want to be with God now. I don't want to be with you forever. So since they don't want to be with Him forever, God's not going to force you to spend all eternity with Him when you didn't want to have anything to do with Him now. And the same goes likewise for those who go to heaven and those who get to inherit God's eternal kingdom. They who go to heaven are only in heaven because they want and desire a relationship and a loving relationship with God in Christ now and forever. And that's it, period. That's what Jesus said. Those that love me while they live now, through my children, and of course love me too, they're the ones that get to inherit eternal life because they wanted to be with me now. For this person who wants God and Christ now to get to go to heaven is a blessing. It's not a punishment. They want to be with God. They want to be with Christ forever. They don't want to be the devil's slave anymore. They don't want to live for themselves and for their sinful flesh anymore. They want God now, and hence they want God forever. So if you didn't choose to live God now, or you chose to walk away from loving Him in your earthly body now, then why would you want to spend eternity with Him forever? It's perfect common sense, isn't it? In closing, we must ask ourselves this simple question today. Really the simplest question that you'll ever have to ask yourself ever. Are we choosing to live a life of love towards God and His children now, or are we not? If you're choosing to live a life of God, a love to God now, then please endure in that love for Him until He returns, or you die. And make sure that your love for God continues to stay a tangible love for God. How do you do that? You, one, you respond to His love for you every day in prayer and in communication with Him. Daily prayer and communicating with God daily. And then, that's that's you talking to Him. And then what? Getting in His Word daily, of course, because, you know, that makes sure that we listen to Him. God's Word is the number one way that we listen to Him. And that's how, that's how relationship works, right? Communication. Communication just can't be on one side. If I talk to my wife and she never talks to me, we're not going to spend forever together. But if we both communicate, communicate together, I talk to her and she talks to me, then we're going to have a great relationship, right? It's the same with God. Loving Him tangibly starts with building your relationship with Him. Loving Him and talking to Him all the time. Loving Him and listening to Him all the time. That's how it starts. His relationship goes on with just being faithful, doing the things that He asked you to do. Being faithful to continue to do the responsibilities and the duties that He's gave you to do. The responsibility of sharing His light to others. 
showing others that he loves them, called evangelism. Sharing him often with people that don't know him so that you can talk about what you love. Because really, we only talk about the things that we love, amen? Right? We don't talk about things that we hate, right? We talk about things that we love. So really, you talking about God is really you talking about what's most important to you. That's number one. Make that a tangible love. Build your relationship with God every day. Be diligent to keep His ways and to seek His face and to listen to Him. Then, how else did He tell us that He wants you to love Him? He said He wants you to love Him today by loving those that are His. He said here by, like, what He said here, Matthew 25, 35, and 36, I was hungry and you gave me no food. What does that mean? If you come upon a brother or sister in Christ that's in need, then you help them out if you have it. Pretty simple. He said, if you love those that are mine, I see it as you love me. If, you're th- if, I, if I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, somebody's desperate in need of thirst, then you, you, you buy them a Coke if they're God's child. I was a stranger and you took me in. A, a, a wanderer. A wanderer you meet on the road that you, you, you ask some questions to and you talk to and you believe, yes, this guy loves God. I need a place to stay. Get him somewhere to stay. This is tangible love that God is talking about. I was naked and you clothed me. Somebody is destitute. They have nothing. They, they don't even have but the clothes on their back. Get them some clothes, Christians. This is tangible love. I was sick and you visited me. Having compassion and loving on those that are sick that you know are Christ and that you and that love the Lord and then go and visiting them and spending time with them not worrying about you getting sick yourself and then he says I was in prison and you came to me well we don't live in a we don't live in a country where there's a lot of Christians in prison but they sure do in other countries maybe you're in Iraq or Iran you're listening to this message well go visit your brothers and sisters in Christ that are in prison and don't be afraid of what's going to happen to you when you go in there And us here in America, if you're listening from here in America, and you know that there's other Christians in prison in other countries. Well, now we can't go visit them, though, can we? No, but we could sure pray for them. The Bible commands us in Hebrews, pray for those that are in prison, for you yourself know that you are in the flesh. So maybe we can't visit them, but we can pray, and we can ask God to visit them and give them comfort and give them peace every day. Love His body tangibly, my brethren. Love His body tangibly with your finances, with your love, with your resources, with your time, with your effort. And God says here, I see that as you love me. And I don't want you to stop doing it. And God doesn't want you to stop living that way until you die or Christ come back to get you. That's what he wants out of you. He wants you to love him back because he loves you and he loved you on the cross. And let's say you're not, let's say right now you're choosing to reject God's love right now. And you're living for yourself and the sin that pleases your flesh. I would ask you, why would you do so? Why would you do, decide to do that? Why would you decide to reject God now? What has He ever done for, to you? What evil has God ever done to you? God is love, the Bible says. The Bible says his love is extravagant. Well, one word is really not a good enough way to express God's love. The only real way to express God's love is through his words that he spoke through the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 6-8. He says, For when you were still without strength in due time, right now you're without strength in due time because you're a sinner and headed to hell. If you're not, if you're not living a life of love toward God, And he says, Christ died for the ungodly or for you if you're not living for him right now. Christ died for you on the cross even though you're choosing to live a willful lifestyle of rejection against him. That's love. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards you. He demonstrates it. He doesn't just give you lip service. He demonstrated his love. That means he showed you with real action his love towards you. In that, while you were still sinners, and I can add, and still in willful sin right now, 
Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Even though you're choosing to live a willful, sinful life right now. And I can add to that my part, not adding to God's word. And I can add, he still desires for those today. He still desires you to accept his love right now and have a personal relationship with him today. There is not a person on earth right now, except for maybe your mom or your dad. Maybe that if you treated them the same way you treat Christ, and you act toward them the same way you do toward Christ, and if you rejected them the way you've rejected Christ, that would still desire to forgive you of all you've done against them and how you've treated them and would still really love you and hope that you would come to them and have a deep and intimate personal relationship with them. Not a person on earth would still offer you that. Maybe your mama and dada. Maybe. And at all, depending on how bad you treat Christ. But if you'd reject them, you're treating them the worst ever because of the great love He showed for you. But Jesus Christ does. And so does God Almighty. And you will never find another person on earth that will love you the way that they love you. So please, if you're not His, if you're not living a life of love to God today, with all your heart, turn to Him today. With all your heart. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Tell Him you're sorry that you've messed up. Tell Him that you're sorry that you've rejected Him. And then turn away from that sin and turn unto Christ and receive Him. For He's the only way you can be saved. He's the only one that loves you, and He's the only one that can save you from your sins. And let's say you're saying to yourself right now, well, you know, Pastor Ed, I'm not really convinced of His love for me. I'm not. Then I would challenge you today to go and ask God, and go and seek God, and ask Him to show you personally His great love for you. And the Bible says that He will. If you really want to know how great His love is, then He will show you personally and intimately and in supernatural ways that you can't ignore and you can't pass off or dismiss if you're really interested to see if He really, really loves you even today. Ask Him. And please, once He shows you, turn to Him. And surrender all to Him. He gave Himself all for you. He wants you all to Himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much, Lord God, for this message. Thank You so much, Lord God, for this day. Thank You so much, Lord God, for Your love for me and for everybody that's listening to this message. Thank You for Your love for the whole world. Thank you for your, that you demonstrated your love, Lord God. That you didn't just give us lip service. You didn't just tell us you loved us and just said it and then just moved on. Lord, you demonstrated your own love toward us. And that while we were still without you, while we were still trapped in our sin, Christ died for us. Because you love us with a real love. I pray, Lord God, for those that are out there that are yours, that they would live an all-out, tangibly loving lifestyle towards you, surrendering to you daily, living for you daily, seeking your face daily, listening to you daily, speaking to you daily, Lord God, and then loving and serving your kids as well too. And I pray that they would not stop until their time is up on this earth and they hear, well done, or come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Lord God, for those that are not yours, I pray, dear God, that you would touch their hearts. And I pray, dear God, that you would open their hearts to the truth. Show them your love, dear God. I pray, dear God, that they would seek you if they're, if they're not sure how much you love them. And I pray, dear God, that you would show that to them. Lord, and they'd be like the prodigal son as he started to walk back, realizing that he was in just a mess. Lord, you were out there looking. You were looking for him or her. And when you saw them, you ran to them. 
I pray, dear God, that they would come to you right now and they would surrender all to you and submit their lives to you and love you back. For you loved us first and that's why we can love you. And I ask and pray all these mighty things, dear God, in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.